Thank you so much for being out today. Thank you, Rebecca. That was a great uh, medley. How many people think you know the theme of that medley? Just think of the titles. Can you remember the titles? Then how many of you know the theme of the medley? Yes, ma'am. Huh? Uh-huh. I can get better than that. What word was in every one of the titles? A name. Every day with thank you. Turn your eyes upon. Ah, there you go. The theme was Jesus, right? And you can't improve on that. But we are here today to turn our eyes upon Jesus, and we are here today to look full in his wonderful face. And that'll be a great prayer for us in just a few moments. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew chapter 22 once again. And we have the scripture before us that was read. I'd like to single out one verse. We have a question here. It kind of comes at the culmination of several verses where this begins in verse 24, but we're only going to read the question even if it seems like it's a little incomplete. You did hear the uh, scripture reading before, so I think you'll pick up on this. Look at verse 28. So here's the question. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. So we'll end our reading there. This promise is to be rather interesting. And I hope God will bless us in this today. We're going to make that a matter of prayer right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day you've given. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine outside. And uh, Lord, it seems we're never content, but we certainly appreciate uh, the way a day like today lifts our spirits, even if it gets a bit warm for us. We're grateful for the fact that you control all those things and don't make any mistakes. And it encourages us to re remember that the same control that handles the weather is in charge of our lives. We thank you for that. Thank you for your awesome power. We thank you that you're bigger than any event, untoward or what seems favorable that goes on in our lives. And you're able to intervene, overrule, and cause all of these things to work out for your honor and glory. And thank you for the comfort that that brings us. Thank you for the privilege of the Lord's Day. Thank you for the Spirit of God guiding and directing so that uh, we have been led to assemble ourselves together uh, in this place today where we can be around fellow believers. We can be encouraged simply by the presence one of another. Uh, we can pray for one another. Sometimes we miss those who aren't here and think to pray for them because we know their needs. And I pray especially for Joe here today that you'll bless him over in Macedonia and comfort him as he's uh, distant from his family and his family as they're distant from him and give him a successful deployment there, bring him home to us safely and help him, Father, that uh, he may be a, a good testimony for you where that opportunity may present itself. But Father, there are many things. We simply want to come to you now and zero in on this service. We want to pray that you will bless us now, that you will open our hearts. I pray that you will just remove from me any limitations and infirmities of the flesh, also that you will grant a fresh cleansing and sense of the presence of your Holy Spirit to minister the word to, of God today in a way that will be helpful, warm, practical, and a blessing in the lives of each who is here. And then I pray, Father, for... Uh, its effect, Lord, to meet the need that we have since you know what those are. And especially, as was mentioned earlier, if we have anybody here today not knowing Jesus Christ as personal Savior, there's certainly an aspect of this that reaches out to that thought today. And I pray that you will use that always and always use the gospel as it's preached in this place to make men and women and boys and girls aware of the saving power of Christ on Calvary 
and how God loves us and desires to have a right relationship with us through his son. So bless, I pray, in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, I appreciate those who filled in last Sunday and glad you got a chance on Sunday evening to hear uh, from one of the missionaries. That's always a good thing, I think. But today we do want to get back to our series, They Asked Him This. So we are looking at different questions that people ask Jesus in the course of his ministry. And uh, remember that we have sort of hit an interesting place in the sense that going back to Matthew chapter 19, there were actually three chapters in that, or three questions in that chapter. And now moving over to Matthew chapter 22, we have an additional three questions. So it's kind of enabled us to stay in relatively the same place and use what we're learning about the context a little bit more effectively as we progress through this. Now, what is uh, in common or what is of interest, I'll give you a quick reminder, in Matthew chapter 22 is that all of these questions are asked by people who are Jesus' critics. We've discovered that probably the largest body of questions asked to Jesus were by his disciples, and that's very encouraging, I think, to us because there's much we can learn. But even when a critic, even when someone unfriendly to Jesus asks a question, there's a whole lot you can learn. Because number one, you can learn about human nature. Why people ask questions like that is often very revealing. But then in response to it, uh, we also many times gain insights. Jesus' teaching is a big factor here. A subject comes up about the resurrection. And when we get to the end of this section, if you'll notice verse 33 again, it says, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Well, the word doctrine is simply the word teaching. And so many times the teaching that Jesus may give in response to these questions is helpful to us. And I think we'll be able to see a little bit of that in the message here today. So who is up at bat now, seeing as how we are on the second of the two questions, or the, we are on the second of the three questions, but two weeks ago we looked at the first of them, and you may recall back in verse 15, first up at bat were the Pharisees. And now we come to our verse today, and who is up at bat now? The Sadducees. Okay, without doing too much with this, this is important and this is interesting because go back earlier in chapter 21. You may not even have to turn the page, but you'll notice in verse 23, it says, and when he was come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came unto him as he was teaching. So what this is doing now is bringing us back into contact with an element of people who were affronted. You remember I talked about that. They were affronted by these parables that Jesus uh, told. Because when Jesus drilled down uh, in these parables, and he started talking about the parable of the two sons, and said, well, the, he ended up by making the application, well, the harlots and the publicans go into the kingdom of God before you. That didn't set too well. All right, And then he drilled down a little further in the parable of the householder and gets to the end of that. Look at verse 42, 43. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given unto a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. That didn't set too well with them. And so who were the people? Well, notice verse 45. And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard these parables... Well, here's a little something interesting. So the Pharisees have already had their time at bat, right? And they struck out. They asked the question about tribute, and they really thought they had Jesus in a box. They really thought there was no way 
for him to go away from that question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? They really thought there was no way for him to get out of that situation without alienating a distinct element of his audience. They really thought they had him. And of course, you cannot put God in a box. We should quit trying to do that. We should realize that God is always bigger than we are, but that's something maybe from last week, although it comes out again now. But now we're turning to that other element. And you say, well, I don't see the Sadducees mentioned in those verses you just read. Ah, but if you turn over to Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, and I'll read this verse for you so that you don't have to turn, or turn if you want. It doesn't really matter as long as you keep your place here. But it's something to know about the chief priests. From what sect did they come? And Acts chapter 5 and verse 17 says this, Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. So you probably read that verse many times before when you were reading through the book of Acts, and it didn't really necessarily gel, but it's important to us now because this is why the Sadducees come now, because they're a distinct part of this. They're the ones sort of the, the priestly hierarchy was primarily Sadducean. And uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, they were primarily Pharisees. And so you had both in the council, as you realize, you had both who made up the Sanhedrin. And uh, so now the Pharisees have had their opportunity. Now the Sadducees get an opportunity. And it seems as if what this is going to be about is the resurrection. It seems as if the question that they ask has to do with the resurrection. So you might sort of think, well, the sermon today is going to be about the resurrection but only to some extent. Because the thing that really comes up here, the thing that Jesus really deals with is, and I'm going to express this in a very practical manner, and that's this. Why do people get in trouble with the Bible? Why is it that people out there in all walks of life seem to make a mess of the Bible. Sometimes even people in our churches make a mess of the Bible. You sort of get what I'm talking about? How many of us have been in situations where we've heard people quote the Bible inaccurately, claim something is in the Bible that isn't in the Bible, take something out of context or whatever, and make all sorts of outlandish statements, and that's really what the Lord is going to deal with here. In fact, it's going to end up being what I'll call a devastating expose of why people uh, make mistakes so frequently with the Bible. And I think there's a lot here for us on the practical level to learn today. Can I say one thing about the first thought before we really spend our time with the second thought? And I've just sort of used a word to capture this, and the word is trap. I can't emphasize enough. I think I already said this by way of introduction, but I want to remind you, I want to take just a moment to remind you that the context of all of this is not a friendly one. Right? So we saw back in chapter 21 that they were offended by his parables, and that this is what launches this whole thing. In fact, when we looked in verse 15, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they may what? entangle him in his talk. So this is sort of the response. It's, uh, they, they're afraid of the people, just like they were afraid of the people in reference to John the Baptist, because the common people heard Jesus gladly. He was popular with the people, but they were really sort of at this point bound and determined that they were going to do something about this person who kept on uh, impinging upon their status and position as uh, the religious leaders of the nation, kept challenging them. 
And so this was the way they did it. So the context is not a friendly one. And the Sadducees choose something to use for their question. Now, we can speculate as to why the Pharisees chose tribute. And I, I, I think that we talked about that last time and kind of got some insight into why they did that. And that's just simply because they knew that it was a volatile subject. Seems like taxes always are. But they knew that they could probably, or they thought, they could probably lure Jesus into alienating his audience if they brought that subject up because many of the Pharisees themselves felt like this whole tax situation was something that was really intolerable, unpatriotic, and perhaps even disloyal to Jehovah. Even though they were forced to be a part of it themselves, that's how they felt. And there were, of course, others in society that felt even more strongly than that. So why did the Sadducees choose the resurrection? Because that was one of their little pet things. And they thought that by coming to Jesus with that, that they could also trip him up, that they could also put him in a box, that they could also ensnare him in his words. Maybe I could illustrate it to you this way. Have you ever noticed if you've had discussions before with, let's say, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons? Um, if you've had a number of those discussions before, you kind of know what some of the things are that they typically, their pet peeves. Uh, say like the Jehovah's Witnesses, you kind of know going in, well, what are they, the first thing that you know that they deny is they deny the what? Okay, they do that, but they deny the big thing that we think about is they deny the deity of Christ, right? They also deny the doctrine of hell, these types of things. And so when you're dealing with them, you kind of know you're going to get that. And after a while, if you've done this before, you kind of know some of the arguments that they're going to use. The only thing I would say is they keep changing them up. And about the time you think you've got all the arguments that they use figure, they seem to, to come up with some other uh, uh, other angle on something somewhere. But this is what's going on with the Pharisees. They They have a great deal of confidence about this because this is something that was one of their little pet peeves. They denied the doctrine of the resurrection. We're told that here. The Sadducees were those who said that there was no resurrection. So they come up with this yarn. And I don't know. I, I think that you have to, I don't see any other way really around the fact that this is a fanciful story it does have a grain of truth in the sense that it does touch off of something in the Old Testament, all right? So we probably should look at that just so we, everybody's on the same page. We've kind of got a, a reference point as to where they were coming from. So keep your finger here. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 25. I will ask you to turn to this because I do think it's important that we see the starting off point because, see, most problems are their most dangerous when they have some starting off point of truth. And so that's what happens here, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 25. Also important because you recognize Deuteronomy is one of the books of Moses. The Sadducees acknowledged the authority of Moses and of the, the books that Moses wrote. So they start with this, Deuteronomy 25, 5, if brethren dwell together. By the way, what this is referred to is the, the law of leveret custom. And it basically is like this in verse 5. We're not going to read the whole section, but we'll read enough so that you can at least see where the starting off point of this is. If brethren dwell together and one of them die, 
and have no child, the wife of the dead shall not marry without unto a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in unto her and take her to him to wife and perform the duty of an husband's brother unto her. Why is this? So that the husband's name would not be lost. The firstborn that would be born to that marriage would take his, the brother's name, and so therefore his name would continue. That was an important thing with the Jews. Name me another place in the Bible. I'll give you a hint. It's a whole book where this is going on. This ends up being a big factor in what goes on. Ruth, right? Because the one relative doesn't want to do it. Boaz says, glad to do it. So you're familiar with this maybe more than you know. So this is sort of the starting off point for this. But when they tell this tale, let's look at the verses again and just sort of look at this. Does this to you have the ring of authenticity? Now there were with us seven brethren. Well, I could see that as a possibility. And the first, when he had married a wife, deceased and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. So far, so good. That's exactly what the law of leveret custom was designed to deal with. Likewise, the second also, you might get me that far. And the third, but the last several words of that verse to me are off the scale. Unto the seventh. Really? If so, I have some swimming pool theft insurance that I would like to sell you after church. This just does not have about it the ring of authenticity. The only thing, the only touch of reality in the story, and if you look at it right and you ladies don't think that I'm making a, a sexist type comment, there's a little humor. I've, I've talked to you about that before. I really pity people who can't find any humor in the Bible. This is the only touch of reality if you read the next verse. And last of all, the woman died also. I can imagine, probably of exhaustion. <laughs> so that part of it rings true. But the rest of it, it just, it's really a fanciful thing. And the whole thing that, that what you get out of this is, is that why in their minds that they denied the resurrection was because they were looking at the resurrection as basically a continuance of life as it is on earth. So they thought they had him. Think about this for a minute. Okay, if this scenario really were true, even if you limit it to someone who's had another husband or wife or two, um, they say they all had her. So in the res resurrection, can you imagine what this would be? So now you've got one woman and seven husbands. Now what are we going to do in the afterlife? She's the wife of all of them. They all had her. How are you going to settle that squabble? Well, they, so it was because they were thinking of the resurrection in terms of a strict continuance of life as it is in this world. I have a question to that. Who would want that? I mean, I'm not making any comment on marriage here, but we do live in a sinful, fallen world, right? And even the best of marriages has two imperfect people in it, right? You can all say amen. You make points with your wife or your husband, you won't get in any trouble. I was fair, two imperfect people, right? But boy, when you have situations where you don't have Christian people and then we know some marriages that are really sad and 
We have a lot of divorce in our society. So even if you look at marriage, but I mean, if you just look at the the, 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 thought, the point that I've made so far in general. Look, we live in a sin-cursed, imperfect world, right? Yes or, yes or no? Yes, we do. So who wants the afterlife to be a continuance of that? And this is where I think of reincarnation, and I think to myself, I wouldn't believe that if you paid me. You mean to tell me that we're in a system whereby it'll sort of be determined in the next life if you made a little improvement, did a little better in the one you were in right now, you might come back on a little higher level. Well, I'm here to tell you, you know, some people don't start out too good, so they've lived a really bad life, so let's say they come back as an ant. Good, somebody will step on you and squash you before you get a chance to do too much bad, so maybe next time you come back as a cockroach. Things are really looking up, right? And I realize some people wouldn't appreciate the way I'm making a, a bit of a spoof of it, and I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm simply trying to point out that, you know, folks, what you're dealing with is what unredeemed, unregenerate man can come up with because what you and I understand to be true from the Bible is the afterlife. That problem is fixed because Christianity talks about a redeemer. Christianity preaches someone who comes into this world to deal with sin and its defects that have come into our lives as a result. Even our bodies, even our bodies, over time, we don't hear as well, we don't have the ability to work as well, we don't remember as well. What's the problem? We live in a sin-cursed world. Who wants that in the afterlife? I've got something better. I'm just glad. I'm not better than other people that believe something different, but I'm just glad that God opened my eyes one day and that we have a hope that's steadfast and sure, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. That's good for me. Because I know Jesus is perfect. Well, anyway, so that's, I did a little more, sorry, with the trap. But let's talk about the teaching now because now we're going to get into what Jesus does here. And I, as I say, what follows now is a devastating expose of mistakes that people so frequently make with the Bible. And so here they are. I'm going to give them to you. If you want to write them down, that's fine. If you don't, I don't care. I hope you will absorb them, though, because I think there's some help here. And the first one was actually touched on a little bit earlier, but I want to do something a little more with it. First of all, the reason people get into such trouble with the Bible is that they don't know the Bible. So look at what this says. Jesus, when he begins to respond, says in verse number 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, ye do err. You've been misled. You don't know what you're talking about. We could say any of those things. Not knowing the scriptures. We're going to stop right there. He says something else, but we're going to stop there for a moment. That's the first reason he gives. People get into trouble with the Bible. The Sadducees were wrong, totally wrong because they made the mistake of thinking that the resurrection was not in the Bible. You couldn't prove the resurrection from Moses. And in fact, it seemed like what Moses talked about with the law of Leverett custom argued against it because it wasn't practical in the afterlife to conceive of a resurrection in those terms. People don't know the Bible. Well, 
I do know this, there are many people that you meet in life that know just enough about the Bible to be dangerous, and some of them are in our churches. I don't really know that I need to illustrate that much to you about people out there who aren't saved who don't know anything about the Bible and make outlandish statements, although I certainly could. But I will tell you something. For instance, how many people, you don't have to put your hand up, but at one time in your life you've thought this was in the Bible, God helps those who help themselves. Don't put your hand up. But you'll be looking in vain. That's not a verse in the Bible. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. In fact, once you start looking, well, then where is it? It comes to us that probably it was popularized by Benjamin Franklin and is something from Poor Richard's Almanac. In fact, if you listen to the phrase, here's what it says. Let us hearken to good advice and something may be done for us. God helps them that help themselves, as Poor Richard says in his Almanac of 1733. Ouch. But how many, people have you, how many times have you heard people say, well, you know what the Bible says, God helps them that help themselves? I see a few people nodding. You've heard that too? Or how many people misquote verses in the Bible? I'm going to say something that you might think about for a minute and think he's nuts. But I'll tell you, you can prove about anything you want to from the Bible if you misquote it. How do you like this one? I'll put together phrases of three verses. Ever heard this before? Judas went and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. That thou doest, do quickly. Let him that stole, steal. No more let him labor with his hands. So we laugh at those things, but unfortunately. Now, let me give you one from the world out there. Wasn't too terribly long ago, it was one of these liberal talking heads. And I, I don't want to be unfair, but I think it might have been Morning Joe. And uh, he was talking about how he was sure beyond any shadow of, of a doubt that Donald Trump was not a Christian. I don't know whether he's a Christian or not. I may have a personal opinion that's not really important. But I don't think I would want to say, here's how I know for a fact that he's not. Well, listen to what his reason was. His reason was the gospel as I learned it growing up and the gospel as I know it. And then he paraphrased from Matthew chapter 25 about the judgment of the nations where Jesus says, Then shall the king say unto them on my right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was strange, and ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came to me. And he says, well, just look at what he's doing at the border, and you can tell he's not a Christian. And I'm thinking to myself, you know what? He doesn't know what he's talking about. So many times people get into trouble. By the way, the Sadducees were absolutely wrong. And excuse me if I spend a little bit more time here, but I think it's important to point this out. Did you know that you can find at least three clear texts? And I think one of the reasons that it's important to say this is because it isn't just the Sadducees. They, they did represent the liberals of their day, but you will find some liberal theologians even today who say, well, you really can't find the doctrine of the Old Testament, uh, of the resurrection in the Old Testament. Wrong. 
turn to Job 19. I'm going to give you all three, and if you're patient and kind enough, I'm going to ask you to look at them. Job 19. Believe Job? Because this is Job talking now, not, not his three friends. Verse 25 of Job 19, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Sounds to me like he believes in a bodily resurrection. That what you get out of it? I don't think you have to have a PhD to get that out of it. All right, look at the next one, Isaiah 26. Well, got them so you can just kind of move forward. Come over a couple books to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. See what you get out of this. Thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. And he has something to say about that truth. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust. For thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. What do you get out of that? Sounds like he's talking about bodily resurrection to me. Daniel chapter 12. Look at verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now we're getting more specific. It, it, this gives us like almost the groundwork for when Jesus in John 5 spoke about the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. So the Pharisees were wrong, albeit some people say that the Pharisees really didn't accept as authoritative anything but Moses. And this may be why they seized on that place in Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5. So in order to really do a job on them, <laughs> I hope you can appreciate this. I don't know how good a job I'm doing of conveying this, but this just, I love this. This is just... Wonderful. So, all right, so even though we have three clear proof texts, throw them out. We'll just go with Moses. Okay, you guys want to argue Moses? We'll go with Moses. So he says to them, verse 31, but as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God. And if you read Luke and Mark's account of this, they specify at the bush. That's where this was. Moses at the bush. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 5. I am the God. This is what Moses said to, uh, this is what God said to Moses. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am. In fact, he even mentioned that was his name. I am that I am. I am. And Moses, or rather Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead, long dead. 
And Jesus makes the application at the end of the verse and says this, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Ha! Can't put him in a box. Beat him at their own game. <laughs> but that's the first place that a lot of people get into trouble with the Bible is because they don't know it. Secondly, they've never really experienced the power of God in their lives. That's the second thing Jesus says. He says, you do err, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. What kind of power of God? There's probably a lot of applications of this that we could make. But if you've never experienced the power of God in your life, one of the key ways that you experience and first ways that you really experience the power of God in your life is when you're born again. The Bible says, of his own will begat he us through the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 says, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And then we're told by the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12, for the word of God is living and powerful. Well, I'll tell you, the day came I found it awfully powerful in my life. How about you? The day the Holy Spirit used the word of God to really bring the fullness of conviction to me and to open my eyes to my lost estate and to show me that I needed a savior, and then to put your faith in Jesus Christ as personal Savior and know that you're a different person. You haven't just had some emotional experience. It's not wrong for emotion to be a part of it, but you know it's something more. It's a, it's a distinct change in your life whereby you're no longer the same person. It's called regeneration. It's called being born again. It's called the power of God. It's called something that religion can't do. And then all of a sudden, something else happens. All of a sudden, you can read this thing and it makes sense. I'm not saying you immediately understand everything in it. I'm saying exactly what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. But the natural man receiveth not the things, the unconverted man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. So why do people have stumble over what's in this book? They've never experienced the power of God. They've never been born again. They're not in sympathy what's he, with what's here, because that's one of the first things that changes the moment you're born again. All of a sudden, oh, my attitude toward this book changes. I love this book. This book is my constant companion. It's my friend. It showed me the way of the cross. It shows me how to live. But the natural man's never experienced that before. And that's why I'm not saying that people can't understand certain things from Scripture in their, by natural intellect. I'm simply saying it's why this is kind of a, doesn't make sense to it. It just doesn't make any sense. It's like the Corinthians, you know, they were big on wisdom. But they didn't really have a ghost of an idea what, Paul was talking about, and only as the Spirit of God opened their eyes and worked in their lives did they come to know that. Thirdly, the power of God. Let's look at that phrase again. You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. They limit God. This is the third thing that gets people into a lot of trouble with the Bible. They limit God by their own logic. Logic is supreme. If it doesn't make any sense to me, it's not so. That's exactly where the Sadducees were in this. Didn't make logical sense to them. They said, how in the world can you have a resurrection and a man or a woman has been the wife of seven men? How are you going to sort that one out? 
they thought that they they thought that that logically it just did not compute it didn't make any sense now folks i want to be very balanced in what i say so i hope you'll listen carefully because i don't want you to think i said something i didn't or miss something that i'm trying to say but Jesus is not suggesting, and nor am I trying to suggest by this, that God expects us to check our brains at the door. God's given us a mind. And when we are told to study the scriptures and search the scriptures, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, God expects us, he gives us a mind. Logical inference is fine. That's actually what Jesus is using here, if you think about it, because he says, if you think about it, how can, how can these people be dead if God says he's still their God? Look at what he says. It's a logical inference that you draw from the verse. So this is not an argument against studying. This is not a, an argument against Bible school. This is not an argument against commentaries. To study the Bible from good godly people, this is none of that. But what it does say is, is that logic is not supreme. Something different is supreme. Just because something doesn't make sense to us doesn't mean that it doesn't make complete sense to God. Just think about that statement for a moment. Just because something doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean it doesn't make complete sense to God. And how many times in our lives have we been shown how true that really is? We judge God by, by our feeble minds. This is what Job's friends were doing. They were saying, you, there's, no way you can be, there's no way you can be what you say you are. You have to have committed all these sins because logic tells us. And their God wasn't, they weren't, their, their God wasn't as big as God really is. God's bigger than all that. God can take truths that don't even seem to harmonize and they make complete sense to him. Sometimes we, we enter into things, and I'll, I'll sort of uh, give an illustration in advance. I'm going to come back to this, I think, in a few moments before we close. But sometimes, for example, we think of uh, the free will of man and the sovereignty of God as incompatible truths. How can, how can you reconcile these two things? And it, we think of them, they're like railroad tracks. They never meet. You know what? They... They never diverged in God's mind. They make complete sense to him. It's just that in this world and with the insights that we currently have, we don't always know everything that God knows. And let me make it very practical to you. How many times in your life have you questioned God about what he's doing or what he was doing or what he is doing? Because it makes no sense. And that's why we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face because it's discouraging around sometimes. You, you start looking around at what's going on. It doesn't make any sense. You can't figure out why this happened, why that happened. Lord, I'm trying to do the best I can, and this happens, and that happens, and it doesn't make any sense to me. And you know what? There are folks that just get to be times when you just have to let go and let God. So here's the fourth thing because it goes hand in glove with this. The fourth thing is they forget how much we don't know. Look at verse 30. 
people make a lot of bad mistakes with the Bible because they don't realize that not everything that you might want to know is revealed in the Bible. So verse 30 says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So what Jesus says is, you guys have it wrong. You think that the resurrection is going to be a continuation of life as it now is in this world, and you don't realize that it's not that way at all. It's a spiritual life, and it's not that you won't know your husband or your wife. It's not that you won't still have that knowledge and, 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 and even that love. But the physical aspect of that relationship is not a part of eternity. But this is probably... Well, at least explicitly speaking, this is probably new information. Jesus is actually giving them more insight than what they currently have. He's helping them to understand and to flesh out. I mean, you might be able to show from the Old Testament that the afterlife is not meant to be a continuation of the physical life we have now, but to spell that out about marriage? No, because Jesus knows it all, right? But we don't know. How many things in the Bible? I quoted the verse, 1 John 3, 2, a moment ago. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. It doesn't, folks. <clears throat> I quoted the other day, and I've done it several times. Uh, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And I used to think, I wish I knew all that stuff, and now I realize... <clears throat> as much as there's still some things I'd really like an answer now because I'm really patient. The more I realize that, you know what, if I had known certain things about the future, I would have never made certain decisions that I made in the past. If I had known that this decision was going to land me at this point, at a certain point later in time, I would have been really tempted never to make this decision over here and yet this decision over here was unquestionably the will of God for my life. So I'm no better than you are. I get frustrated with it too, but sometimes it's just as I say, you have to let go and let God and figure out, you know, there's a wisdom in my not knowing certain things because it would probably be a stumbling block to me. It's probably better that I don't know those things. And it grows my faith when I have to go through those experiences. If you, I don't have time to turn, but if you want to write this down, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Secret things. There are secret things. There are things that God, you can look the verse up sometimes, a great verse. And we get into trouble. I'm going to give you a couple of quick examples. In 1988, a retired NASA engineer, so you can kind of figure that he was not dumb. A retired NASA engineer wrote a book. His name was Edgar Wiesenot. He wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. I'm serious. I just came to Huntington in 1989 and I don't exactly know. He, he was predicting between September 11th and September 13th, 1988. And so I got a copy of that book in the mail. I, I right away put it down on my bookshelf. 88 reasons why the rapture is going to be in 1988. And I'm thinking to myself, I can give you one reason it isn't. Because of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, not the angels nor even the Son of Man. Jesus said that. 
Well, that book sold a lot of copies. He turned around the next year after he proved to be wrong and wrote another one. And I, I don't know, my title for it was 89 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1989, but his title for it was The Final Shout, Rapture Report, 1989. He wrote two more books in 1993 and in 1994 saying that the rapture would be in those years. And I bet you can guess that the sales on the latter three books were not nearly as high as they were for the first book. Then comes along, this is not, there's no end of these illustrations, but then comes along Harold Camping of Family Radio. And some of you will remember this. Now, I wasn't traveling your road so much those, in those days to know this, but all of a sudden billboards started going up in the area. And if you were coming back from Harrisburg on 322 towards Huntington, which I make that trip some, uh, you would see a billboard and it said the rapture was going to prepare, uh, occur on May 21, 2011. You remember this? Anybody see any of those? Do you remember that happening? That got a lot of attention. It really did. There was stuff on the, the TV about it that got a lot of attention. Well, he said the rapture was going to occur May 21, 2011. Now, I'm just ornery enough. Let me tell you what I did. But I, I, I say it only to be funny. I really felt led of the Lord. On Sunday morning, May 15, six days before his predicted, seven, six days before his predicted event, I preached the following message, why the rapture will not occur on May 21. Then it was kind of interesting. I, I, this, is, this tickles me. I noticed after that on Sermon Audio that all kinds of people had sermons after May 21 about why he was wrong. And I thought to myself, you chicken. <laughs> you waited until after. I preached mine the week before. Absolutely confident. Because I think God's just ordinary enough that if he was planning it, and you know we speak in human terms, if he was planning it for that day, he'd change. Because he already said in his word, you don't know the day or the hour. Folks, we slaughter the Bible many times because we don't keep in mind how much we don't know. And lastly, and I won't say much about this, we're kind of out of time, but people approach the Bible with their own preconceived notions. And we're guilty of that sometimes in our churches. We decide certain things just aren't so. And so naturally, we never find it in the Bible. Even if you were wrong, you'd never find it in the Bible. So, for example, I, what I said a minute ago, and I, you know, I'm not stepping on anybody's toes here this morning. That's not my intent at all. And I know over the years you've heard a lot of preaching, so I'm not, I'm not reflecting on any, any preacher you may have heard. I'm just telling you something. You know what? We, 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 we've got in our minds that, well, you know, the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, they can't be harmonized, so... These guys over here that talk about election are wrong. Well, what do you do with all the verses that mention it? You got to find some way to just sort of either not read those verses or explain them away. So let me give you a, a real life story. Um, in the 13th chapter of Acts, there's a verse of scripture. And you can look if you want, it doesn't matter, but... Back when I was finishing up my final degree, 
we had, there, there, there are always what are called comprehensive, comprehensives, five tests. I believe two oral and three written was what it was. Well, since my major was New Testament interpretation, guess what? You were responsible for the interpretation of the entire New Testament, whether you'd ever had a class in, in all the books of the New Testament or not, you were responsible. But they could bring you into that oral or comprehensive. Now, you were there in front of three of the top-level graduate faculty who were on your committee. They would bring you in there, and they could ask you any question they wanted. You weren't required to say that you completely understood the verse, but you did have to know a viable interpretation of the verse. So, one of the gentlemen in one of the questions asked, what about Acts 13.48? How do you explain that? It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. What do you do with that? And my answer was, I said, it means just what it says. I just accept it. Pose me any problem. I'm not going to force my inability, my puny logic. I'm not going to force that on God. If God says that's how it works, I'll understand it better by and by. How you get the railroad tracks that seem not to merge. I like the story, I think it was Harry Ironside actually told, and maybe this will help you feel better about it. Actually, I had another story I want to tell you, but we don't have time for it. It's a, it's a great story of a time when Spurgeon preached to a Methodist audience about election. Now, can you imagine that? That goes over about like a ham in a bar mitzvah. But Spurgeon challenged them and said, I'll have you all saying hallelujah by the end. And he did. And I was going to share that story with you this morning. I don't, we don't have time. Maybe another time I'll do that. But I like the old illustration of if you like, you think about going out the door here to church. You don't have to turn around because you probably have this memorized. But it says exit right over the door, right? So instead, let's say that's the door to heaven. You've died and you're, you're entering heaven. Over the door as you enter, it says, whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. But then when you get into heaven and look back from the other side, there's another side over the other side of the door that says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Makes complete sense to God. And we have to be very careful about it. And this is what the Pharisees or Sadducees were doing. They were approaching the Bible with their own preconceived bias that there was no such thing as a resurrection. We're going to close with this. I want you to notice back in our chapter, there are two upshots of this. One is, it tells us in Luke chapter 20, verse 39, and we won't turn to that, but it says that the scribes, well, let me read it for you. Another little touch of humor. Because Jesus gets to the end of this, and remember I told you that the scribes were largely from the Pharisees. Jesus has got the Sadducees over the barrel big time here. And so in the Luke account, Luke includes a little detail in Luke chapter 20 and verse 39 that says this. Then certain of, uh, then certain of the scribes, this is the end of the story, then certain of the scribes answered and said, Master, thou hast well said. Hey, like that. 
But then in Mark's account, if you get down a little further, when the whole thing is over and the third question is asked, Mark tells us that the common people heard him gladly. Matthew tells us at the end of this particular account, they were astonished. Mark adds that the common people heard him gladly. Folks, where I want to end is simply this. You know what? I think we just need to get out of the way. We just need to know this book and preach this book because it's a powerful supernatural book. And even with people that you go up against and you think, you know, there's not a prayer this person is going to ever listen to me. This person has all these degrees. This person is so antagonistic. This person is never going to respond to the truth. Well, let me tell you this real quick. There was a long time ago, and this story was told by Arthur W. Pink, uh, a Hindu priest. He didn't know anything about Christianity. He'd never met a Christian missionary. He'd never heard about the cross of Christ. He'd never seen a copy of the Bible. But one day in the, in the temple, it's a, a Buddhist priest, one day in the temple, he was rummaging around. He found a copy of Matthew's gospel. The copy of Matthew's gospel got there because someone had given it to one of the other priests or a missionary, a traveling missionary had given it, and they left it there, and he found it. Well, he was curious, so he started to read it. He got to Matthew 5, 8. So he starts reading it, chapter 1. He gets to Matthew 5, 8, and it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He didn't know anything about the Bible. He didn't know anything about Christ. He didn't know anything about anything. But he said in his heart when he read that verse, I shall never see God, for I am impure in heart. Ah! Over time, the Spirit of God kept working, kept deepening that thought within his mind. Till more than a year went by, he'd been in that uncomfortable state of conviction. You know what we're talking about. And one day he heard that the foreign devil was going to be in town. Now, the foreign devil was a missionary. And that he would be selling books and so forth. And so, he, that rather, that he was going to visit a town nearby. So the priest made up his mind that he was going to go visit the man. So he goes to the adjoining town. He visits the man. And he says, I have a question. Is it true that only those who are pure in heart will see God? The missionary said, yes. But the same book which tells you that also tells you how you may obtain a pure heart. And they went on to explain to him about Jesus Christ and the redemption that I spoke of. See, they, the Buddhists don't have any kind of redemption like that. And do you know that Buddhist priest was saved? And I'm just saying, beloved, Get this book in your heart. Get this book on your lips. Open up this book and let it go. And you might be surprised what God will do. Oh God in heaven, thank you today for your love. We just marvel, Lord, to see how you were able so, in such an agile way to move through these problems move through these arguments, move through these minefields. And we thank you for the fact that one day soon, whether you return or whether you take us to be with yourself, we shall know. That day will come when we shall know even as also we are known.
and all these things we've wondered about life and all these things we've wondered about the Bible and everything that we ever read that didn't quite make sense and we couldn't quite explain will be crystal clear. We thank you for the faith you give us today to believe that. So I pray for every child of God here today, Lord, whatever may be going on in our lives, whatever puzzlement, whatever lack of sense life seems to make, where we're struggling because of the fact that so often it seems that good things happen, bad things happen to good people. Thank you, Father, for, and thank you, too, that you've opened our eyes to the truth of God's word. We're forever grateful. We realize we don't deserve that. We realize we don't know it today because we figured it out on our own smarts. We know it today because you made the first move. You reached out. You wooed us and drew us with cords of love, even as you did that Buddhist priest. Thank you that we have that story to tell to people and that hope that you give us in your word. Encourage our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.